Well, good morning. It is great to be here with you. This church um, is always an encouragement to us. I, I feel like there's... We did college ministry for a number of years, and I know a lot of you sent your kids down to us, and, and we kind of connected to the church indirectly that way, and sometimes even the students have come back, and so we see familiar faces here. Uh, some of you have even sent your kids to Africa to visit us on short-term trips, and we thank you for that and all the support in different ways over the years. I just look forward to, to giving you an update on that later, um, but for now, uh, we get the Word of God, so let me pray for us, and, and we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your, your kindness to us and gracing us with another day that we do not deserve. We thank you for um, the opportunity to gather as believers, just to, to be together and to, to hear your word preached. Lord, as we sang about earlier, we, we fix our eyes upon you, our soul's reward. And we long for the day that you will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. We look forward to that, but until the race is finished and the work is done, we will walk by faith and not by sight. And I pray that we would do that, that we would walk by faith and honor you with our lives, that there would be a difference in the way we live as a result of that faith. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Well, a number of years ago when my children were young and we were putting my son down for bed, he asked for a zebra. Now, such a request isn't as strange as it first sounds, as at that age, we often let our children play with toys in bed as long as they stayed in bed and they stayed quiet. But I was pretty sure that we didn't have a toy zebra. My son insisted that we did, and so I went over to our pile of toys and I I pulled out a horse, and I brought that back to him. And he said, nope. And I went on and on like this with a few different toys, looking for a zebra, trying to give him something close, and I couldn't. So finally, I said, all right, show me. And he gets out of bed, and he comes over to the pile of toys, and there's an umbrella, a little plastic umbrella, which he grabs and says, zebra, and then goes and hops in bed. I'm not sure why he made that connection between an umbrella and a zebra, but he did. All right, well, not too long after that, we were uh, driving around. We picked up some students for Bible study, and we were driving these students to Bible study, and it was raining, and we turned a corner, and my son yells, zebras! Now, I knew exactly what he was talking about, but these poor people in the car with us They were clueless. They had no idea what was going on. They looked at my son. They looked at me. They didn't know how I understood him. Right? But we did. As I was getting ready to preach this message today, I got a lot of zebra looks this week. Right? People would say, what are you preaching on? I'd say, Joshua 5 and the circumcision of Israel. People would say, huh? What, why are you preaching on that? All right? When I was getting ready to come here, I got an email from Liz saying, hey, what's your passage? And I told her, Joshua 5, the circumcision of Israel. And only later, like last night when I was reviewing some of those emails, did I see 
The worship team wanted those songs, wanted that to know what songs to pick. <laughs> so I'm sorry, worship team, but you did a great job of picking songs, even with despite the passage. The question is, why, of all things I could preach on, why the circumcision of Israel? And the answer is, is because it's so encouraging and it's so convicting, and I think you will agree with me by the time we finish this morning. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Joshua chapter 5. Now while you're turning there, let me just say, I realize that in this group I'm on the older end of the spectrum, all right? Um, and I'm not up with the latest trends and fads, and, and, and so I just want to make it clear that I generally do not speak about circumcision. All right? If you came over to our house, this is not a subject we would be discussing at the dinner table. In fact, I'm uncomfortable even using the C word. All right? So I generally do not talk about circumcision. But my friend, Dale Lowe, there is a man who will talk to you about circumcision for hours and hours on end. So if you have any questions about this, I just want to encourage you to go talk to him, all right? And I, and I would just say, this man, if you didn't know, he is an expert. He is an authority on the subject of circumcision. So if, if you did not ask him a question about that today, it would break his heart. So <laughs> please bring all of your questions to him. All right, we have a lot of background to cover this morning, a lot to set the table for our text. And so uh, let's get going here. Joshua 6 is the fall of Jericho. Right? We love that story. We know that story. It's a story we're all familiar with. Joshua 5 is the foundation for what happens in Joshua 6. And so I know I said Joshua 5, but let's actually back up to chapter 1. I just want to give you a, a quick walkthrough up to the point in our text. All of this occurs in a period of about one month. Joshua 1, verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. And so note here that we are outside of the land when this narrative starts. Right? Drop down to verse 6. The Lord says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. After addressing the people and giving them some commands about preparing to enter the land, a segment of the people say to Joshua, verse 16, All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And then, how would you like this as an introduction to your leadership in verse 17? Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. The people grumbled against Moses. People took up stones against Moses. <laughs> they wouldn't necessarily say they obeyed Moses. If I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, this, this is not reassuring. It's no wonder the Lord commanded him to be strong and courageous. 
Chapter 2, the two spies are sent into the land and Rahab receives them. Then look at their reputation in verse 10. It says, for, we, know, for we, have, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Chapter 3, at the end of verse 15, it says the Jordan River is flooded. And so the people do not just cross the Jordan River, they miraculously cross the Jordan River. God does just as much of a miracle when he parts the waters here and they cross the Jordan as he does at the Red Sea when they left Egypt. In fact, look at this promise to Joshua in verse 7. The Lord says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Chapter 4. The ark of the covenant is there, and the priests, they carry it into the river, and the, river, the waters part, and the people cross. And as they cross, they're commanded to take 12 memorial stones because God wants this event to be remembered. Verse 15, the Lord says to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. Remember that date. It's important. We will come back to it later. The 10th day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Verse 20. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Chapter 5, verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. 
the entire nation is now inside the promised land. This is the perfect time to attack. The people of Israel are unified. This doesn't happen often in their history, but they are together. The people of the land are terrified. Israel has all the momentum. So what are we going to do, Joshua? What is your plan of attack? Are we going to take out the little cities one by one? Or are we going to go after a big one? Make a big splash. What are we going to do, Joshua? Chapter 5, verse 2. Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. What? Huh? I mean, talk about zebra looks. I'm sure Joshua got his fair share here. But if I can just say it, this, this is stupid. You are in enemy territory. You have a massive army that you are facing. The Jordan River is to your back and it is flooded. You have nowhere to retreat. You are on open plains with nowhere to hide. The enemy is in walled cities. You do not physically incapacitate your warriors, right? So that they need three weeks to recover. Who's going to protect you? Who's going to keep the enemy from coming out of that city and slaughtering you? Why would you do this? More importantly, why would God command the people to do this? Why is circumcision such a big deal? Right, now, to answer this, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 17. A right, few passages we need to look at here. Genesis 17. This is where God first gives the instructions to the people of Israel to be circumcised. <clears throat> if you're familiar with this text, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Right? A covenant is a promise confirmed by cultural practices. Right? So God makes a covenant with Abraham here. It's legally binding. Genesis 17, verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. My covenants often have signs. When you get married, you enter into a covenant. And you exchange rings, and the rings are the sign of the covenant. 
They're a visual reminder. When you see the ring, you remember that you're married. You remember the covenant that you've made. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. That's the way God intended it. Every male throughout your generations, not just Abraham's time, but all the generations that follow, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Now look how serious God took this. Verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. All right? Exodus chapter 4. Okay, I need to look at another text here, Exodus chapter 4. Chapter 3, Moses is commissioned by God at the burning bush. Chapter 4, God sends, excuse me, Moses is sent by God to go to Egypt. God sends him. <clears throat> and there's some verses at the end of this chapter which are very easy to skip over, but very important. Verse 24, <clears throat> at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. All right? Now, there's no description of how Moses figured this out, but God got Moses' attention somehow. All right? And this, this, this is kind of confusing because God has just commissioned Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bush. And now he's ready to kill Moses. So, so what's going on here? Verse 25, then Zipporah, who's Moses' wife, she took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And there is more going on here than is recorded. But the reason Moses' life was in danger was because he had not circumcised his son. God is getting ready to deliver the Israelites from the Egyptians. And the leader of the people of the Abrahamic covenant had not circumcised his son. Well, there's a word for this. This is called disobedience. This is sin. And if this circumcision had not taken place, you would not be reading about Moses in your Bible. God would have read, led, raised up someone else to lead the people of Israel. Exodus chapter 12. One more text to look at before we go back to Joshua 5. <clears throat> Why else is circumcision so important? Exodus 12 is the first Passover. Verse 43. Lord says to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. 
But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired servant may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall, not, he shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. No circumcision, no Passover. All right, with that context, we are ready to go back to Joshua chapter 5. We are also ready for the outline here. All right, in Joshua chapter 5, we see three situations in life in which we should respond with trusting obedience to the Lord. If you are taking notes this morning, and I encourage you to do so, write this down. This is my outline. Three situations in life in which we should respond with trusting obedience to the Lord. I say trusting obedience because it's obedience that stems from faith. We need to believe first, believe to be saved. And as a fruit of that faith, the works come. We naturally obey. I say three situations because three situations emerge from the text. But really, we're talking about all of life. And if I, I can just give you this now. The absolute best place to be anytime, anywhere, is in trusting obedience to the Lord. Right? Write that down. If there's one thing you take away from today, this is it. The absolute best place to be anytime, anywhere, is in trusting obedience to the Lord. Right? Regardless of the circumstances, your health, your finances, whatever, even if it means dying a martyr's death, the absolute best place to be anytime, anywhere is in trusting obedience to the Lord. And from this text, we will see three situations to help us evaluate if we are doing that. Right? For those of you who are watching the time, this will go quick. First situation is perplexing circumstances. We see this in verses 1 through 9, perplexing circumstances. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haaraloth, which means hill of foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt all the men of war who died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, and I'm sure Moses, after his encounter in Exodus 4, was sure to pass that along to them. Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And this is important here, verse 6. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until the, all the nation, the men of war who had come out of Egypt, perished 
because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to give their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. Why didn't the wilderness generation circumcise their sons on the eighth day as commanded in the Abrahamic covenant? Old, outdated, inconvenient, old religious stuff that doesn't make sense in this day and age anymore. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. The truth is, the vast majority of this generation was redeemed physically, but not spiritually. The wilderness generation is the wilderness generation because of their disobedience to the Lord. Deuteronomy 1 says that they're an evil generation. Psalm 95 says they're a people who go astray in their hearts. And the author of Hebrews picks up on this and he says that they saw the works of the Lord, but they did not know his ways. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that the wilderness generation is an example to us, the church, of how not to act such that we would not desire evil as they did. Not circumcising their babies. It was just part of their perpetual pattern of disobedience. Verse 7. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of this place is called Gilgal, which means rolling to this day. From a human standpoint, this is stupid. This deserves zebra looks. You do not physically incapacitate your warriors when you are in enemy territory with nowhere to run. From a divine standpoint, this brought the people into covenant obedience with their God. Most of them for the first time in their lives. This is not just a random act. The nation is now rightly related to their God. And this is a big deal because God promised the nation of Israel that if they obeyed him as a nation, then their enemies would be defeated. You say, what if it's Jericho, the most fortified of fortified cities? It doesn't matter. If these people are in obedience, it's a biblical mandate that Jericho must Go down. What about you? Do you obey the Lord in perplexing circumstances? Do you obey the Lord when it doesn't make sense from a human point of view? Now, just to be clear here, we as Gentile converts are not required to be circumcised. Acts 15 makes that clear once and for all. And we are not promised that if we obey, then our enemies will be put down. In fact, Paul says almost the exact opposite to Timothy. When he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
It's a promise. But we do face difficult circumstances. We do face situations that don't make sense from a human point of view. And do you obey God in those situations? Do you trust that his ways are better than your judgment? Do you obey regardless of how silly it looks or what anybody thinks? After all, the best place to be anytime, anywhere is entrusting obedience to the Lord. It's the first situation in life in which we should respond with trusting obedience to the Lord. The second is in our daily needs. And we see this in verses 10 through 12, our daily needs. All right, chapter 4, verse 19, I mentioned 10th day of the first month. And this is significant because that's the day that you select the Passover lamb. By the way, did I mention that if you're not circumcised, you can't be a part of Passover? And so now that the nation is circumcised, look at what happens immediately after that. Verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. As far as we know, this is only the third Passover in Israel's history. First was Exodus 12 which we looked at before, right? That was the original Passover. The next Passover happens a year later in Numbers 9. And there's no mention of Passover again until Joshua 5. Then again, how could you participate in Passover if you were a male and not circumcised? Why would you even want to participate in Passover if you were a wicked, disobedient generation? So look at this. Look at what happens next. Verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The manna that God had been providing since Exodus, the manna that God had provided for these people for the last 40 years, just like that, is gone. These people were not in disobedience, right? They were walking in obedience. They were obeying, and God took away a good thing. And he begins to provide for them in another way, through the produce of the land. Do you respond in trusting obedience in your daily needs? God may stop providing for you in a way that he has in the past. And not to spiritualize this, but what do you do when, quote-unquote, the manna ceases? Do you look and try and figure out what went wrong so you can get it back? Or do you look not to the gift, but to the giver himself and continue to respond with trusting obedience even though you don't understand what he's doing. Philippians 4 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches 
in glory in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that he'll provide in the way that you expect it. It doesn't mean needs as you define them. It doesn't mean that he's not going to stretch your faith from time to time. The truth is, we can have faith to believe that God forgives us of our sins. And then we can turn around and struggle to have faith that he will provide for our daily needs. And when our faith is struggling, that is not the time to take a pass on obedience. As we wait upon the Lord, we need to continue to respond with obedience. The God of Philippians 4 is the same God in Joshua 5. Different circumstances, but the principle is the same. After all, the scriptures say, great. Not marginal, not good, but great is thy faithfulness. After all, the best place anytime, anywhere, is to be entrusting obedience to the Lord. It's our second situation in life in which we should respond with trusting obedience. The third is the little things. We see this in verses 13 to 15. The little things. Joshua goes off by himself. Perhaps he is scouting. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and being the good soldier that he is, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? In other words, I don't recognize you. Verse 14, he says, no, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. This man doesn't answer Joshua's questions because it's the wrong question. And he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. In other words, to the degree that you're on the Lord's side, then I'm on your side. This man was the pre-incarnate Christ, and Joshua gets this. You look at verse 14, continuing on, Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he worshipped him and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Take off your sandals. Why? Reverence? I think so. Parallel to Moses? I think so as well. But also, a test of obedience in the little things. And look at Joshua's response at the end of the verse there. It doesn't say, why do you want my shoes? It doesn't say, take off your sandals and I'll take off mine. It doesn't say, what will the people think if I come back barefoot? It simply says, Joshua did so. Do you obey God in the little things? in the simple commands, when nobody's watching? Or is your life a life of half-truths? 
Are there secret areas in your life that are not given over to God where you're not obeying Him? I used to live in Africa and I would have to change my money, exchange it. I went to Exchange Bureau one time and I, there was an error made in my advantage. And to my shame, I thought, boy, you know all the times I've done this and I've been shortchanged? So this kind of helps even the score. And I put that money in my pocket and I walked out. And then the Lord convicted me. He said, what am I doing? Messing up my walk with the Lord over about a dollar. And I went back into that exchange bureau and I said, you gave me too much and sorted that out. If we don't obey God in the little things, what makes us think we're going to obey him when it gets harder? The absolute best place to be anytime, anywhere, is entrusting obedience to the Lord. Many call Joshua 5 a parenthesis. It's an aside between the big events of the crossing of the Jordan in Joshua 4 and the fall of Jericho in chapter 6. I would suggest to you that Joshua 5, it's not an aside. It's not throwaway information. This is so important. Joshua 5 is the foundation for Joshua 6. There is no victory at Jericho without the obedience in Joshua 5. There are some here today that might be looking for that Jericho moment in your life. We love that when God steps in and he removes some seemingly impossible obstacle in your life. Who doesn't want that? But instead of looking for a Jericho moment, we ought to be looking at our walk with the Lord. It wasn't automatic with Israel. It's not automatic with us. Whether it's perplexing circumstances, daily needs, the little things of life, or any other situation, the absolute best place to be anywhere, anytime, is in trusting obedience to the Lord. Is that where you are? Let's pray. Lord, we are so naturally prone, prone to wander, prone to disobedience. The pressures of life can become excuses to justify our disobedience. And I pray that that would not be true of us. We are new creations in Christ. I pray that we would live consistently with who we are in Jesus. May we walk in a manner worthy of of our calling. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.